Blog Talk Radio. Seasons of the Witch. We got a little bit of a late start. We're having a little bit of technical difficulties, but here we are, nonetheless. They can't keep a good witch down. Mm. <laughs> so, uh, welcome back. Uh, tonight, we are going to be talking about the second half of Raven Gramassi's life in his own words. And if you listened last week, you would have heard we started with Raven's early childhood and his exposure um, at during that time of his life. And then we talked through his childhood, his teen years, young adult. We went through the decades, and the last uh, part we left off, what, at your 50s? I think we were talking about the decade of the 50s. Right, right. Um, So um, that's where we're going to pick up this show this time. I do do just want to make a couple of announcements, and that is um, that... uh, Raven is busy. If you've been watching on or following him on Facebook, you'll see that he's been busy working on his new manuscript uh, that's coming due very soon and will be out uh, next, probably February, March time. And um, so his life has been very uh, taken up with that part. Indeed. And um, our, our just an update on the house that's actually moving along at a very quick right now because um, we were able to get the um, owner of the instruction, the construction company involved and um, so he's taken over the project and uh, he's really cracking the whip so we're very excited about that and we'll probably be back in our house sometime uh, around the first harvest which is quite kind of apropos and exciting at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. So we're really looking forward to that. Uh, we don't have um, any workshops coming up uh, through the summertime, um, we will be at again at the Robin's Nest on summer solstice. We will be doing a workshop there as well as uh, incorporated into the workshop would be a, a part of a celebration of that uh, Eve celebration of um, summer solstice because we'll be doing it at night. So we hope that some of you will consider coming and joining us there. I know the weekend of the solstice is a big time for people to be celebrating as well, but uh, you could start a little early with the Kromasis, and that's at Robin's Nest in uh, Bellingham, Mass. So, um, trying to think of uh, what other exciting things are happening. Uh, life is just exciting, uh, just to keep living each and every day, giving huh. it the best you can. So, let's then turn to Raven Gromasi in your own words, and let's go back to where we were in uh, starting uh, where we left off at, at your decade of the 50s. And um, 
in that decade, you were doing a lot of, uh, I think we did talk a little bit about this. But yeah, I, we were in the, that section. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> that that was when you really started doing a lot of your author appearances and um, how you felt about, uh, you know, the festivals and the conventions and the painting yeah, prizes. Yeah, we, we actually did talk about right, that. Right, and what that was like. I think Probably in the 60s, then. Yeah, but I, I just want to recap that. That it really, I think how you felt about that too was that once you were out in the public venue, that it really brought home to you the effect of your writings on your readers, mm-hmm. because that was an opportunity to hear from them in person. And I have been uh, there on many occasions to witness people coming up and telling Raven what an impact his book. No matter, you know, any one of the 20-plus books that he's written, the impact that it had had on their lives and how it had opened doors that before had been closed and that, you know, it gave them aha moments. And that's not to say that each and every one of those people became students, but the fact that you do have an impact, you had an impact on me. (laughs) Yes, I mean, honestly, that is really uh, what brought you really into my life and into my attention was your ability of communicating um, teachings and concepts and principles in a way that is so accessible to any age person that I think that that is such a valuable uh, um, asset to have. Well, it's certainly, um, I don't want to use the word flattering, but it's certainly uplifting to hear from readers you know, as to what they got out of the book, uh, the changes it made in, in, in the way that they think or practice or whatever. It's a pretty astonishing thing to to realize that you can sit, you know, and you study and write this manuscript, which becomes a book, and then ends up in people's homes where they're reading it, and then they have, you know, various reactions and experiences. And to end up at a festival or a workshop or even a book signing and and get that kind of feedback um, is really fascinating and, and feels really good. What, what's funny about it sometimes, though, is somebody will be telling me about something that, um, you know, I wrote that touched them in such and such a way, and they'll be going into, you know, talking about what I wrote, and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, and in rare cases, I'm thinking to myself, well, that's really not for where I was going with that. That's really not what I was saying, but, you know, wow, okay, you know. Well, it's a perception. Yeah, yeah, you know, which is great. I mean, you know, they still got something out of it, but but weren't really tied into what I was actually trying to communicate. Um, And it gets me to think, too, you know, when I write now, I try to think about what I'm saying to people and what their reactions might be and how I can better state things. I'm always trying to refine that way of communicating because I think in my earlier books there was a lot of misunderstanding. But I have to say that a lot of misunderstanding comes from people not reading the preface and the introduction to your book Mm -hmm. because a lot of the things that would have given them the correct way of, of seeing this material would have been announced in the preface and the introduction where I'm saying why I'm writing it the way I'm coming at it, you know, and, and uh, what, what I'm hoping to gain and what I'm using and not using, those things are very helpful. But when people just jump into the book or even skip around, 
um, they they miss the real um, true presentation of the material. And I think they're more likely to kind of misunderstand things that way and, and take it from a different point of view. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, if it still helps them, then, you know, that's good. So. Yeah, but I, I, I agree with that because the introduction is always about how the author envisioned the book's presentation and his his um, perspective of the book. And of course, I really do think that's important to the reader to understand. And in case in point is Italian witchcraft, um, where people's criticism of that book was about you um, that it was Wicca, and that yes, it had Wiccan elements in it in order to make it more relatable to modern times, but it wasn't something that he was trying to pull over the wool on people's eyes about. He mentions that in the introduction that for that exact reason, uh, to make it more relatable in a modern time, he added elements of Wicca to the old way. And uh, so there were no shenanigans going on there, but that's still, you know, people still love to bring that up. You know, they they, they just think it's, you know, he he was trying to be, you know, secretive or something about it, and it's just not the case, and that happens more often than not, because people don't read the introductions or the preface. And then they want to assume, you know, the worst. Right. Because, you know, in the introduction, I clearly state what I did and why I did it, but they don't read that, so then somebody, I've seen reviews on Amazon.com where people are saying, you know, kinds of things that Stephanie's talking about where they're making accusations about something. Had they read the introduction, they would have known exactly where I was coming from and they wouldn't have misunderstood. So. Well, and that, and, and, and I'm not trying to, you know, beat a dead horse. However, I do want to say this as well, and, and that was some of the criticism about Ash, Birch, and Willow, too, was that, you know, people were criticizing us trying to, as if we were trying to present that as some old tradition but clearly in Old World Witchcraft, where it was first talked about, and Grimoire of the Thorn-Blooded Witch, where it's um, expanded on, in both cases, the story of how Ash, Birch, and Willow came to be is explained in there. And there's no, again, there's no shenanigans going on there, uh, trying to um, deceive people. And I say it in that kind of way because it, it, it can be annoying, you know, that the yeah. same old arguments come up when clearly there's no reason for them except for possibly personal agendas of, of um, disenfranchised people or, or, you know, people who don't really want to support our teachings. And you know what? It's only our opinion. It's only our tradition. If, if that's not for you, we're okay with that. Yeah. You know, any of the it's, writings, uh, any of you your know, books, it's fine. Depart respectfully. Yeah. So let's get into the the uh, the sixties then, which is the mm-hmm. decade that you're in currently, yeah. and um, and 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 talk a little bit about that. I mean, how how is that different from the past decades of your life um, as a witch, and then also not only as a witch but as an author? Well, I think the decades, you know, they give you a lot of refinement. You know, each decade of writing and presenting. Um, you know, my teachings on the craft, um, each decade adds a little bit more insight because of my continued experience. Um, in the 60s now, it's it's really coming from a, a reflective, more reflective point of view now than 
say in my 30s where I was researching and trying to bring new ideas and, and the views into things. I think now I'm more reflective and I'm just sort of calling out what I think is the most important elements and and trying to give people the feel, you know, for why we do what we do. Mm-hmm. And it's not so much researching and and that anymore. It's just really saying, you know, this is what I've come to fully believe and embrace and this is where I think the heart and soul of our spirituality and the craft is and I try to come more I think from that and that's that's changed me as a witch um, you know just because it's a kind of a better place to be it's not arguing for it's just revealing what I accept mm-hmm. and and as an author I think it's easier now like I'm finishing this one manuscript and I have to do really almost zero research on it so it flowed in a way that was easier than previous books because I'm just writing now about my recollections and offering things that I know are, are um, viable practices and and aid to the consistency of your magic and your spells. So that's all based upon my experience. Right. Experience I didn't have in my 20s. Right. right. Um, that I do now in my 60s. Um, so, yeah, that, that's where main, most of the changes have come. Well, I know that you mentioned um, early on in the, in the talk about this that when you see um, a cult of books, the the earlier cult books, you know, by Levi Left, Doreen, not Doreen, Dion Fortune, and um, you know, numerous ones right. that in your early age that you really didn't understand those. And as well, I you, thought I did, but clearly I didn't. Right, but then as you got older, you reread them, yeah. and you got more out of them. Is that still today? Like, if you were to read them again today, would you get something different out of them even well, now? Well, I have. I mean, I still go back to them for research, and now I completely get where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. But that's because I caught up with them, you know, mm-hmm. in my own experiences, and I know what they're talking about in my 20s. I didn't know you know, as much as I thought I did. So I was reading these guys and these ideas that they were talking about and concepts were things I'd never experienced. And so, you know, rather than thinking, oh, well, they have something, you know, to offer me, maybe I better try and study that more. I just kind of read it and thought, well, that doesn't really make any sense. You know, maybe that's just, you know, their own thing or they messed that up or whatever. You know, it's kind of an arrogant way of looking at it. And then 10 years later to reread the same book and see all these gems of wisdom <laughs> in the paragraphs that I thought were foolish, mm-hmm. you know, really shows you how you're the problem. You know, when you're a student, um, you should be receptive and respectful and, and try to understand what you're being taught, you know, rather than hunker down and base everything you're hearing from an experienced teacher filtered through your own experience and then rejecting experience you haven't had as though the teacher is wrong or incompatible or, you know, whatever the case may be, mm-hmm. to realize it's more about your lack than it is about the teacher's. But, you know, that, that's a whole other story, uh, which I think we'll cover Later on. tonight, in, you know, about the uh, the thing about teachers and students. Right, right. Yeah, I'm sure we'll have time to talk about that. So, um, but what about... The past decades, like, how has that changed for you as a witch? We heard you talk about being an author and how that's changed for you. What about living your life as a witch now? Well, I touched upon that. I mean, in, in, in saying that, 
that for me now it's just the totality of experience. You know, it's yeah. a, I've come to a certain um, personal gnosis, you know, based upon all those decades of experience that that make me comfortable, you know, where I'm at now and not, my need is not to, you know, prove something or point to research or quote from, you know, other it's people sure. that have yeah. written, right. you know, because that's all settled in within me. It's not a, in an internal argument right. or anything. So now I'm just coming from where I am, um, from the basis of almost 50 years of of doing this now. It's It's just the way that I know it to be. It's an inner knowing, um, which is completely comfortable, and I'm not, you know, I'm not defensive. I'm not, you know, I don't have a knee-jerk reaction to anything. Um, I'm, you know, more likely to just sort of smile if someone's disagreeing and say, "Well, I guess, you know, mm-hmm. I guess we disagree," rather than saying, "Well, let me quote from such and such or prove my, you know, position." Because clearly, here this folklorist once said, you know. I don't have the need to do that anymore um, because I know who I am and I know where I'm coming from and I know what my experience and knowledge has been <clears throat> and and um, and I'm happy with that. I guess I I guess I you did answer that. I think the two have melded together, the author and the witch. I mean, yeah. they always have been, but I mean, in what you're saying is yeah, it's a reflection it's, it's, as yeah. above, so below yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so um, this is. This has uh, been a controversial thing, and mm. it's even to this day, I would say, within the last few months, this same, um, uh, I don't know, what uh, discussion has come up. It really wasn't a discussion. It was, it was, it was a pointed uh, thing about why you left the Italian witchcraft past. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that was just within this last decade or two decades, actually, 2004. I think we, right. we were moving on from that. And and what made you to decide to do so? Right. Well, you know, I I formally actually stepped down as the head of the Arisian um, mm-hmm. tradition. You know, I can't remember what year that was. We were living at the ranch. I want to say it was uh, like two two. 2002, maybe? Yeah, somewhere yeah, around there. Yeah. You know, there were a lot of reasons for doing that, but I didn't stop practicing the Italian craft, but I stepped down as the director of that tradition for personal reasons. Um, but, you know, as we started having experiences, um, as you know, we, something was trickling through, and we didn't really clearly understand it until the, the first sprouts of what became Ashburton Willow, you know, popped mm-hmm, up. Mm-hmm. And um, once confronted with this non-cultural view of the craft, you know, and I had been initiated into other cultural expressions, Celtic and British and uh, of witchcraft, and they each come from their cultural pinnings, mm-hmm. views, myths, legends, you know, whatever it might be. And I realized that in all of those, including Italian witchcraft, I was that kind of witch. I was an Italian witch or a Celtic witch or a British witch, you know, a Pixie Scalic witch, you know. But the greater thing of being a witch was not there, you know. It was just this expression, that facet, you know, of it. And I found that in boiling all that away, I think I write about that in the grimoire of the thorn-budded witch, that falling into the cauldron and letting 
a finite expression of my witchcraft boil away and coming out of the cauldron no longer an Italian witch or Celtic witch or British or Pictoscalic, I came out in the larger role of witch and I realized that there was a more expansive identification of being a witch rather than an Italian witch or whatever kind of witch, Mm -hmm. just saying I'm a witch. And that led to us using, as you know, the term pharmacute, which is the earliest word in Western culture to be translated into the English word witch. And it has a different meaning than the roots of Wicca. Um, And it's a much more expansive idea of what a witch is. Um, So that's really what, uh, you know, came of all of that. People um, got weird about the idea that I was no longer practicing witchcraft when I formally announced that. And uh, did I say it wasn't that? I think you said witchcraft. Oh, Italian witchcraft. Um, You know, and then some people, you know, just were shocked and other people got snarky about it. And this one clown said, um, you know, that I must not have ever been a hereditary Italian witch because I would never have walked away from it. And, you know, as though somebody knows you well enough to say that. You'd have to be you to say that, you know, because only I know my reasons for doing anything on the deepest level. So, you know, I'm fully aware of why I did it and why I did it is, is what I what I had to say about it. I realized that there was more to me than just that. And um, so I moved on and became pharmacute in the Ashburton and Willow tradition. And that to me is extremely liberating. I'm not pinned down. I'm not held to a certain book of shadows. I'm not held to a certain cultural view or the expectations of other people because I have this, that, or that other label, Um, you know, now I'm free to be in the growth of my witchery, and, um, you know, and that's what that's all about. People can try to take that away if they like, but uh, that's a a pointless uh, cause, because that's not going to happen. Right, and it is a beautiful tradition. I mean, it's, it's, you know, we still have... uh, some initiates left, not too many that were still part of the original. The original. Yeah. Oh, the original group. Yeah, the original tradition that are still practicing Italian witches. Um, and and to, to also make note that you are, I believe, the only author who has written a book, a comprehensive book, such as Italian Witchcraft, which was first written as Ways of the Strega, um, that... Um, uh, that is one of the mainstays of Italian witchcraft, as far as people knowing anything about it. It's your book. Well, it certainly brought the idea of strega, right. you know, to the public mind. And mm-hmm. at the at the time I wrote the book, that wasn't something you heard much about. Right. If you did, nobody really knew much about it. But after my book, I mean, forums started popping up, and groups started popping up, and they would read my book as the kind of foundational material. Right. And then different things happened as a result of that. Mm-hmm. Some people built upon it. Some people rejected it, which is fine. Um, and then some people just decided to attack it, you know, as a whole. And, uh, you know, that's just, you know, fine. Um, if that's what you got out of it, that's what you got out of it. But, and, and, and I think so that's the, well, that's like the attitude now in my 60s is yeah. different because that would have bothered me in my 30s. Yeah. You know, but now it doesn't. You know, if you don't think anything about it, if you think it's bull, you know, fine. 
it, it doesn't change my life. It yeah. doesn't change my belief system, and it certainly doesn't change my experience in, yeah. in it. Um, so, you know, believe I what totally you will. I totally understand yeah. that. Believe yeah. what you will. It's funny. Yeah. Yeah. We also, um, we had uh, been teaching a course of study in Italian witchcraft, and because uh, Ashburst and Willow had become so primary in our lives that um, we had, for I think a couple of years, uh, discontinued that course of study, but over those couple of years of that discontinuation, we had a lot of people contacting us about the Italian witchcraft. So we re, uh, reactivated that course of study. So we are currently offering that. It just started um, an enrollment session, um, just I don't know, a couple months ago. Um, and it goes around. It's a 13-month course, and it'll come around again for uh, registration, um, I want to say maybe in January. So mm-hmm. if you're interested in that, you can always contact us, and uh, we can put you on the list to be notified if that's of any interest to you. It's, it's a wonderful course. It's, it's, yeah, it's just that I no longer will do live workshops we, yeah. on the Italian craft, but I will continue to have the course of study available right. online. Right. Okay, so um, I think we've, we've covered that part. So, um, why don't we talk about the teaching thing for yeah. a little while, and then we can go back to Okay, the... okay, so so bringing that, like you you just had mentioned that you're no longer teaching that particular workshop, uh, how how did you become a teacher? And and uh, how, how, when did that first, well, I know when that first started, but how did you become a teacher? And, yeah. and uh, what are the challenges of teaching? <clears throat> Pardon me. Well, you know, I was kind of coerced into teaching because uh, I used to share things that I knew in group settings if it came up and Sometimes people wouldn't know that much about it, so I would share as much as I knew, or maybe next time I would show up with, you know, further information that I was able to, to collect. And pretty soon I, I found that every time I was in a setting of people, it seemed to always turn on me as what I knew about this, that, and the other thing. And pretty soon I realized that I was kind of already teaching the, you know, people, and that was not my intent. Yeah. And then I actually formalized one day, somebody said, you know, you should, you should be a teacher, you should do classes in stores and different things like that, and, and I didn't want to do that, because um, I really didn't want to be a, a teacher. I was, I was more interested in learning myself, you know, rather than stopping my time of self-education to teach other people, but it just became such that People didn't know. Maybe they weren't willing to take the time that I took to study. You know, I'm not sure what it was. But slowly but surely, I found myself doing more formal, um, you know, group teachings because people wanted it. And I, I like to help people. It's, it's kind of my nature. And, um, you know, so I just started doing that. Next thing I knew, one day I woke up and I, I may remember even saying to myself, oh, shit, I'm a teacher. Mm-hmm. You know, and that was not what I wanted. And, uh, the other thing I did want was to someday be an author. You know, there are times when I wonder what the heck I was thinking um, in that regard. But um, that was the thing I set out to be. But I set out to be that someday after my learning and experience had, had matured that I thought I would then, you know, start writing books about it. And, and it sort of ended up that way. I mean, I started writing, what, in my 30s? Mm-hmm. Um, Formally writing. I, I'd always been writing since I was a kid. 
Um, I remember in the sixth grade, I wrote a, something about witchcraft for a friend of mine, and he, he was really excited about it. He was asking too many questions, so uh, after the thing I wrote for him, so I had to shut him down because I wasn't on the liberty to, to get much further into it, but... Um, you know, but yeah, it is interesting how this all went down. Yeah. Now the challenges of teaching, you know, are many. Um, you run up against a lot of different things that you didn't expect. You know, um, when I first started teaching, I guess it was in the seventies. Uh, back then, there was this popular idea that a teacher shouldn't be paid for their time and experience, that they should only be reimbursed, you know. So in other words, if I drove half an hour to a shop and I had some photocopies to hand out and I was there teaching a two-hour class, the popular belief of the time is my two hours should be completely free. No one should have to reimburse me for that, but they should reimburse me for gas and uh, the cost of the uh, photocopies. So then the store owner would put out a little jar and say, well, these, you know, this cost, you know, Raven a dollar for the, the sheets you've got. And, you know, and, and he filled this tank for $10. So, you know, $11 is, you know, what you should give him, you know. So, you know, that's that's what they, you know, they would put that in. But people would, um, I remember people would look to see how much was already in the jar. Oh, and if you were already fully reimbursed, then they'd stop. Wow. You know, so in effect, some people didn't have to reimburse you at all. And uh, I always thought that that was weird. And, and then they would criticize, you know, teachers wanting to be paid as though that was unethical. And I remember at the time thinking, well, where's the ethics in a student always having their hand out for something free? Yeah. Where's the ethics yeah. in that, that you're entitled to free the teacher's free time, you're entitled to only reimbursing, you know, but if he's already being reimbursed, then you don't need to put anything in the jar. That You just sit there and take up two hours of the teacher's time for free, thinking he's not worthy well, I, of I, being paid for his time. And I always thought that, well, where, where are the ethics if you're pointing at the teacher well, I think as being were, unethical for wanting money for his time? Why is it not unethical for you wanting to be free? Well, I, I think they were confused in 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 the religious connotation there. Yeah. That thinking that you know the clergy spiritual and moment. yeah spiritual and and or religious and nobody gets paid for that. The only difference is, of course, that the pastors, the ministers, the priests, um, they're all taken care of by their congregation. Right. They're housed. They're fed. They're you know they're clothed. Right. They they really get a stipend. Yeah, and so. Sure, that that's that's true. They they don't um, for their sermon they don't, although they do pass for tithing. Yeah, um, no, it's all so, it's all well, well. Some of that was in in begrudgment to that sure. system. Yeah, and then some of it was just like what I said. You know, if 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 they wanted to, you know, take care of you, house you, clothe you, and 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 do all that, then they wouldn't have to pay for each and every class. You know, get together right. as a group, but. Um, you know, so I, I fully, I fully believe in, in exchange. Absolutely. I think that it's a give and take. Yep. You know, and in days of old, it certainly was. If you went to get a healing from a witch or you know a spell or whatever, you know, you better bring some eggs 
a chicken or something, yeah. you know, because if you just Vegetables showed up with your hand out, out exactly. you know, you're likely to get a thorn stuck through your palm, you know. Um, that was the old deal that nothing, you know, nothing that there is, has to be exchanged. There's nothing can be given without something received, and nothing received without something given. That's right. That is That's the law. That's the law. Um, and so, you know, today I don't, you know, uh, I remember when I first started writing, you know, people were photocopying my material and giving it out to their friends for free. And then um, some of them were actually charging. When I first wrote my book, people would quote long passages from my book and I would write to them saying, hey, you need to give me credit on your website. You know, you just, you know, basically took, you know, 10 pages of my chapter and never said where you got it from. And then they would criticize me for complaining, saying that this is spiritual material and you don't, you shouldn't be allowed to have a copyright on it. So they were arguing against my copyrights in my book that they should be able to just take my book and republish it as their own because it's all spiritual. Well, you know, <laughs> that's well and good for you, but that's how I make my living. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and so I have a right to be paid for the time invested, just like anyone does in a job. I think that somebody would not appreciate it if at the end of the week their boss didn't give them a check and they just said, well, I just felt that, you know, you should do this just out of the, uh, a good heart, so I decided not to pay you, you know, that doesn't, doesn't fly. Well, I, I, I do want to say that we have, we have seen how much people do appreciate your contributions to the arts of witchcraft oh, yeah. um, with your books and, and your teachings and uh, the gratitude that they have shown, the outpouring of love and blessings yeah. and care. Now, there's a lot of support. Come to you, yeah, no, you know, in our, in yeah. our hours of need. And, yeah. and that is from that so far outweighs any. Well, it does. Anything I mean, negative. All, even, you know, somebody. Any of the naysayers, any of the, any of that. Well, you know, and, and somebody, you know, writing a nasty email or somebody posting a, you know, a harsh uh, review, you know, on Amazon or something. That one person, for, for everybody that does that, you know, there's a hundred or more who, who give me kudos, you know, and that's always a great feeling, um, you know, because there's always going to be somebody who doesn't like what you did or has, is in opposition to it in some way or, you know, whatever the case may be. But, you know, my books have survived the decades because I think that they give people something worthwhile. And that's why, you know, they're still around. And um, there's been a lot of cuts in the industry and books aren't selling like they used to. So authors are finding that, you know, publishers don't want to pay for the storage of books in a warehouse. So they'll start returning rights back to the um, author and then they'll dump the stock on, a, you know, uh, some remainder, remainder uh, what do they call them? Uh, yeah, remainder. Well, they're warehouse, they're outlet yeah. warehouses, you know, where they yeah. just, you know. And, and your book disappears, so, you know, um, so you stop earning anything off of that book. So I think a lot of uh, authors were finding that our, our sales are way down uh, compared to what they used to be. But, you know, my books are still accepted when I send in a manuscript, and, you know, I still have my uh, my people, and I appreciate each and every one of them. Your people? Our people. Because, you know, writing is my bliss. It's what I really love to do, and the only reason that I can live my bliss is because people continue to purchase my books and allow me, you know, the ability to be able to do this. And so I'm, I'm really grateful to my readership. 
So on that note, which I think is, is just so sweet, um, let's take a little break. And um, I think we're going to listen to an artist in our repertoire here. Uh, let me just go over because I, I decided that it was going to be, it was going to be, I believe, Jenna Green at the Crossroads. So uh, let's have a little here, uh, a little listen to that, and we'll be right back after this short break. Stay with us on Seasons of the Witch. Follow you. 
beautiful voice of Jenna Green. That's just lovely. Well, welcome back to Seasons of the Witch for our next part of the show. Um, we just were finishing up um, with Raven's, uh, uh, in his own words, segment of the show. And um, I think that uh, I think that what you said, you know, at the end there is really a, just a blessing. You're, you know, everybody, it's just a reciprocal thing, you know, mm-hmm. that the, the gratitude that you feel is the gratitude that others feel for you as well. So um, I think that that's a good segue into talking, take, taking us into another uh, discussion on another part of uh, being a teacher. Mm-hmm. And um, I I know that there are a lot of challenges to, to being a teacher. And in recent times, I know, you know, with social media, it's so instantaneous that uh, if somebody wants to post something uh, without any cooperation or, you know, they feel um, justified in some way that um, a teacher becomes a target. And um, I've seen that in recent times where that is happening. And it, it can be very challenging for a teacher to be out there, you know, with a multitude of people um, in your, um, what do I want to call it, in your vicinity and your influence of, of teaching, and what are what are some of the pitfalls to that? You know, having such a, a broad scope of individuals that come to you as a teacher. I know we team teach, but, you know, mm-hmm. we we both go through our own things about that, and, and so yours are, are can be different than mine because you're the author as well. So what what are some of those, those challenges, and how do they present themselves? You mean with individual students? I'm not sure. Yeah, with students in general, you know. Well, you know, the I think one of the problems is that, you know, people come to you at different levels. You know, there are some people that... Um, pretty much are on the same page where you're coming from as a teacher. But then there's people who aren't, and there's people that have very strongly absorbed uh, eclectic teachings that it makes it difficult for them to move on. Um, you mean move into something new? Right. Yeah, yeah, move on from where they've been yeah. to, yeah. you know. I always assume when someone comes to me as a student and wants me to teach them, mm-hmm. my natural assumption is you want me to teach you. Right. You don't want me to, you know, just sit and pat you on the head for what you already know, and then we call it a day. Mm-hmm. You know, I always tell my students, you know, if I leave you exactly as I found you when you first came to me, if I leave you with that and don't change you at all, then I failed you as a teacher. I have to, in some way, help you grow or transform or, you know, gain some new perspective. Mm-hmm. If I'm unable to do that, then I'm not teaching you anything. Well, but if you don't let me do that, yeah. I can't teach you anything. And and we do find that. All, you know, students can be very resistant to change, and they can be very resistant to trying things that are unfamiliar, right. that they think they don't even like it. it, it I've had people actually complain afterward. He tried to make me do something I didn't want to do. And I I look at that and say, you know, it's like a a parent with a kid, you know, and and you want them to try this vegetable. 
that they haven't tried before because you know it's nutritious and you know it's good for them. Right. But they don't want to. Right. And they think you're being mean because you're wanting to. And so you're, well, well, at least taste it. No, I don't want to taste it. I hate it. Well, how do you know? You haven't even tried it. Well, I know because I hate it. You know. And so you, you get a student that way sometimes where they're just so resistant against the idea that you're trying to present. Just try it, you know. And uh, they don't, and then they don't get anywhere, and then they turn around and say you're a bad teacher because you're not progressing them. Well, how can I progress you or any teacher progress you if you're just going to hunker down and, and not do anything? I've had students come to me and they say, you know, I, I'm not getting anything out of this. And I say, well, how many times did you do the exercise? They go, yeah, well, yeah, I tried it once. Yeah, yeah. I said, you tried it once? Yeah, I tried it one evening. Right. Didn't get anything out of it. Right. I, so you just dropped it? Well, yeah, because it didn't work. Oh, yeah, no, I mean, and I'm you, like, well, do it again. Yeah. Well, how many times until it works? <laughs> you know, that's the idea. Well, it's you kind know? of like It's just like if you were in a weight, if I was uh, teaching you weights. Right. You know, and last night you did three, you know, uh, bell bar lifts, but woke up the next morning without massive muscles, then you're blaming me that I don't know what I'm doing to teach you. You know, uh, it's a process, and if you're not willing well, to are, gain from my experience, then we're not going to get anywhere. Well, and I, and I think, Rorke, you kind of touched on something, too, is that the dissection of the idea of the teacher is giving the student a process to experience their own gnosis. They're not telling the student, in our case, or your case, because you are my teacher, that you that I have to believe in what your experience was. Right. You're giving me the process to to experience on my own, to come to my own gnosis about it, my own experience through it for my own development. But I see a lot of students get stuck on that and think that you're forcing them to have that same. It's like reading one of your books, you know. If you don't believe what's in this book, you know, you are a bad witch. That's not the case. That is the same with a student. I think a lot of times they come in thinking that they have a preconceived idea or an expectation because that's how they've done things. And they're really not an open vessel no. to the exploration of that. And really, witchcraft requires that. Well, it does. And it requires doing the work. And, right. You know, that's the thing. You know, people, I was, was going to mention this earlier. You know, people, <laughs> people talk about abusive teachers a lot. Yeah. But rarely do you ever hear anybody talking about abusive students. Oh. And they exist. Yes, they do. You know, and, uh, you know, it, it's not all on the teacher's part. You know, abuse comes in many forms. Right. You know, mild forms is just your student refusing to do the homework. Right. That's abusive. Right. You know, especially when they turn around and complain that they're not getting, getting anything out of it. That, that's that's right. abusing your teacher. Yeah. You know, and, and bad-mouthing your teacher is, is abuse. Um, you know, um, re- relentlessly seeking extra time. You know, where they just are on you and on you and on you and on you. And, of course, they want your time for free. So they'll, you know, they'll spend two or three hours talking to you whenever they can get the chance. Right. Um, and they don't know the boundaries, you know, and they're not honoring boundaries when you point them out. Um, uh, you know, so students can be as abusive as they claim teachers can be. Um, it should be a balance, you know. It should be a respectful balance. And... 
I present myself as the teacher. I present myself in the time frame that this will go from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock, and I fully expect it to end at 3, not at 6 or 9, because, you know, people have decided they, they want to extend it. You know, it was already set, and as far as I'm concerned, that's the perimeter. I'd stay easily for an hour of Q&A, but not another three hours, right. because my time is as valuable as the student's time. Right. Um, so, you know, it's so easy to point the finger at a teacher and make them the bad guy or make them appear to be abusive, um, you know. and, and that is not to say that there are not abusive oh, teachers. there are abusive teachers. It's, it's, that's, that's the nature of everything. There is polarities in everything. But Raven's point is that, that so often that you know, teachers are blamed, um, especially when there could be um, a disenfranchised group of students who've decided that you know, one person you know, comes away with one feeling and they start talking about it and then all of a sudden, you know, the teacher who they have uh, professed their love and respect for all of a sudden is none of those things and they've been a student of yours for how long? Well, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Long time. You know, it, it's weird, you know. And recently, you know, it was brought to my attention that this one person had said that in all the all of her years as a student, that she'd never met a teacher who was worthy of enhancing her spiritual growth. <laughs> when I hear something like that, I mean, I hate to sound, you know, negative or, you know, harsh, but I think... For somebody to make a statement like that, you know, it, it could be that they're just a lousy student, you know. That happens. There are students that just, they're not good students, but they want to blame it on, on someone else, and that's, it's unfortunate. Um, I think that we find often that, uh, not often, but on occasion, that students will switch from teacher to teacher. You know, they run to this teacher and that teacher, drop this teacher, run over there. Um, when I see that, I, I kind of wonder to myself, are they just shopping around for a teacher who's going to coddle them? You know, a good teacher won't do that. So the student then starts looking for a new teacher because they're not being coddled. Well, um, but the wandering student rarely understands that he or she should have the teacher they need for growth and not the one who pats them on, pats them on the head for where they already are. Well, you know, I always go back to saying that that it's really what is that what is that person seeking what does the seeker really want the student really want mm -hmm. you know out of the experience that they're they're signing up for per se and um i think i think that that's a big part of what happens between the teacher and the student and it doesn't matter how <laughs> what kind of questionnaire you have how many <laughs> interviews you do um, you, you know, it, it, it just never, it, it'll never pan out really sometimes. It, it never really works that way. Right. You find that, um, those were, that was just, um, what do I want to say? Just, uh, what do I call that one? Lip service. It was just lip service to the teacher in order to keep going. And, um. Well, sometimes though, it's, it's, they're, they're good at looking at loopholes, you know. Oh yeah. Um, I remember, you know, when one. Uh, tradition coven setting where a new person was being brought in and in that particular tradition um, one of, from my past 
um, we worked half the year sky class, so there was virtual nudity. So one of the questions was, do you have a problem with virtual nudity? And the person said, no, not at all. So we said, okay. So the time came for a ritual that was nude, and she, she says, oh, no, I'm not going to do that. And we said, well, you said that you didn't have a problem with ritual nudity. And she says, I don't. I don't have a problem with other people being naked in ritual, <laughs> but I'm not going to be naked in ritual. So I thought, oh, loophole, you know. She avoided the question altogether, you know, because uh, I think at the time she didn't want to say that because she thought she wouldn't get in, you know. Oh, it, yeah. You know, so oh, yeah. you just give lip service yeah. like you say, and then yeah. it comes time, and then it's, oh, no, and then you're the bad guy now. Yeah. Uh, as the teacher or yeah. the coven leader yeah. because, oh, now you're trying to get her naked, you know, mm-hmm. and she doesn't want to do that, you know, and then so the whole thing morphs into this weirdness that had she just been honest and uh, transparent. Right. In the beginning, that never would have happened, you know, but it's so easy to make the teacher the bad guy uh, when it's really something that was generated by the student. Well, in, in, in this, you know, being a teacher in this particular genre, in, in, in teaching, um, you know, as far as I'm concerned, when I look at it, it's teaching spirituality, which involves um, spiritual development and personal empowerment and um, moving past your own self-imposed limitations. And so it's different than other things, you know, because you really do have to work to do the work in order to grow, and that is really what it's about. It's not, it's not writing an essay, you know, on um, microbes or, you know, something like that where you can sit down and just, you know, write out whatever you want. This really is about your personal, your, your life right. and about how you internalize things and then from that externalize them out into the world and it, it's about personal evolution. Yeah, and part of that is getting out of the victim mode, you know, so many people, um, it doesn't work out, you know, for whatever reason, they fall into a victimization role and a witch should never be a victim, a witch should always be a full participant in her his life you know to look at you know what was what was your role in that um you know i try to do that when a when a student will leave or students upset or you know i find out they've gone off and they're bad mouthing you know me and i try to figure out okay well what role did i play in that you know and then i'll find something where i see where they decided to take something i said or did in as negative a way as they possibly can to fit their agenda you know, and I can see they used a small kernel of truth to build this huge, you know, uh, um, rant Story. or drama or, you know, tale of, personal inj- right. tale of personal injury right. when none of that was really the case. And then I, I watched them, and the more they repeat the story, the more it morphs okay. and the worse it becomes and the more things I did that I never did and or said that I never said. Right. In the beginning, you can see glimpses of the truth in, in the uh, rant, um, but within a few months, that, that rant is now, and that story is now something so beyond anything that ever happened oh, yeah. that you just shake your head and you're just like, gosh, you know. Well, and, it, and it's like one moment in time eradicates everything yeah. else. Yeah. That always fascinates me. I mean, 
yeah, all the good that you did and all the times you counseled them and all the times you spent the extra time with them. And, yeah. You know, and then they would tell you how much they loved you and, you know. Respected and you. Respected you, how kind you were, how generous you were at your time. Yeah. And then one thing happens and now you're just an asshole. Yeah. And all the years of good mean nothing to them. Um, and they just walk around bad mouthing you as though none of that ever well, happened. There was, there was, as you know, there was one person who left the tradition who said at the time, well, I never, you know, she would always rave about the, all these uh, profound experiences she was having with the material and how much she loved the tradition and all these great things that were happening uh, with the spirit contact and everything like that. And she spent a couple of years with us, and then when she decided to leave, she leaves saying, well, none of this ever worked for me, so, you know, that's why I'm leaving. Yeah. And so my thought is, well, which time were you lying? Yeah. Were you lying the last two or three years to us, or are you lying now? Yeah. You know, because clearly both can't be true. Um, and so as a teacher, you're, you're left with that sitting in your lap and wondering how that person got to that stage. And um, one person once said to me, and I think it was very profound, it was one of our initiates when we were discussing it, and she said, well, these people need a reason to stop believing. Mm -hmm. And so the only way they can do that is to reject all the good that you brought and to reject all the experiences that they had in the tradition so that they feel free to move on without any, you know, well, I don't know what you want to call it, gratitude or recognition. Right. Um, it just liberates them completely um, by finding a reason for all of that to be worthy of walking away from. When, no it, when, when it was a big part of their life for a very long time. Right. Um, and then in the tales they tell after they leave, there's no trace memory of all the good that was there. There's just these these little um, cherry-picking stories that they have that they want to turn into these grandiose things that are so beyond the reality of what happened and what we shared together. Um, it's, it's bizarre. That's right. I can't even think of any stories that they can cherry-pick from. We are who we are. It, it just it boggles my mind. It's just like being accused of, well, of thinking that we are the high and mighty yeah, that we're sitting on. A, I mean, this is so yeah. far from the truth. Well, because somebody accuses that. Oh, well, they walk around like they're wearing crowns. And I'm not, and, and, and like, what? I, I don't, and I'm, I'm not trying to, I don't even know, I don't know how to explain it, but I'm not trying to defend myself no. or us, but. Again, it's just puzzling. It is puzzling. Yeah, it's just puzzling. It's a human condition. Yeah. That's what it comes down to is the human condition. And as you said, a reason to stop believing. And I think that it, it makes us really, it really makes us sad. And the other part of having an abusive student is that they're out there talking about how every, how, and, and I'm not distracting from anybody who has been abused from a student, um, as a student, because there are people who have been, and it's yeah. legitimate. Right. I'm talking about things that are incongruent with our experience and others around us who know us and have been around the same people. And then these stories that are being told, that is what I'm talking about right now, is the abuse of the, the student is, that they talk about how much they were hurt without ever giving 
any thought to how we are hurt, how the teacher is hurt, the feelings the teacher has of being hurt by these people who profess to love the tradition so much. Yeah, they can care about us and respect us, but it's more about their contribution to the whole than it is to, you know, to us. As directors, directing elders of Ashbrook and Willow, it is our mission to provide the teachings and the material to people who are seeking and feel that this is the path for them. We never force any teachings upon anybody. We never, um, we, we never uh, make it uh, oblig, you know, what do I want to call it? obligatory? Is that a word? Obligatory. Obligatory to um, do anything in particular. The only one thing we, we always ask is while you're in the initiatory system that you do not initiate into another initiatory system while you're in training. That does not preclude them having initiatory um, training prior to Ash, Birch, and Willow, and they don't have to throw that away. But if you're going to be training in Ash, Birch, and Willow, that becomes your full focus. And any of the other courses, I mean, if you want to be a student uh, and, and train and, and get the most out of any kind of course of study that you're taking as a student, it seems only reasonable that your focus is completely on that rather than to juggle you know, um, three, two or three different kinds of courses of study or modalities that you're working on because you can be a jack of all trades and a master of none while you're doing that because you're never going to get the most out of it you can. Well, yeah, it's like them reading a book. You're going to miss a lot of context. You're going to miss a lot of things. You you pick up a few things, but had you actually read the book from cover to cover, you you would have had a a lot of material and a lot of things that would have helped you, but you just jumped around and you think, oh, yeah, it's a pretty good book, you know, whatever, or not a good book, because you never really took the, the amount of time and energy necessary to accomplish what you set out to. You bought the book because you wanted to learn what was in the book, but that's not what ended up happening if you skim read it. You you know little bits and pieces. To me, it's like walking past a restaurant and you smell the food and then you go home and you write a review of the restaurant based upon just the little bit you sniffed at the door. That's the same as skim reading a book. Um, you can't do that. You can't go home and write a review on the restaurant because you didn't really have a full experience. Um, to be able to do that. That doesn't stop people from reviewing either a teacher or a tradition or whatever or a book. Uh, and that's unfortunate, you know. Um, so so you talked about the challenges as a teacher. Mm-hmm. So what so how have you changed have you changed your approach to that at all? I mean how do you well view that now as being a teacher? Um, yeah. You know, part, the- part of it, part of the change is the resistance that, that I feel now to stop allowing for the opportunities for abuse. Because I try to be open-minded and I try to give people the benefit of the doubt, and I'll give somebody a chance that I feel mm, maybe I shouldn't. And I used to do it all the time, and it leads <laughs> to the problem. It's harder for me to turn that off now because that's just my nature. Mm-hmm. But now I am starting to be more 
discerning. discerning, more focused, because I'm finding out that, you know, I've wasted a lot of time teaching people, you know, yeah. and I, I could have been shared that time with students who were really attentive, but I wasted it on five who who really weren't, I hate to use the word worthy, but weren't really worthy of, of being a student. And I wasted time on them that I could have given to students who were. So now, you know, I don't have a, much tolerance, and I know that that's hurt some students' feelings, you know, because I just point out to them now, you know, that when they say, oh, no, yeah, I, I, I tried that one night, you know, and then I said, well, then you need to keep going. Don't come back to me and tell me you're not getting anything out of this training when you're not putting anything into the training. You know, so I'm a little harsher now rather than just say, oh, well, you know, keep it up. Um, I'll be more pointed. Mm -hmm. And um, there's some people now that if I have a gut feeling this isn't a good student, then I'm not even going to to allow that person in, whereas I would have in the past. I'm just thinking now, you know, something in my spirit saying, you know, here you go again if you do this. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and I point out to all teachers, you know, if you have a student telling you all of their problems, believe them. <laughs> Yeah. You know, don't just think, through, oh, I can fix that, or, you know, believe them when they're telling you all the things that that they don't think are good about them as a student. Believe them. But, you know, now I'd like to give the balance because I don't want the show to be, you know, sounding snarky or negative or, um, you know, or disenfranchised. Yeah, we're, you know, well, we're disenfranchised. Yeah, we're no, I mean, I'm, we're fine. It's just that, you know, we're, we're more discerning now. But, you know, I do want to point out that, you know, there are, there are students who are amazing. Um, some of my students have actually been some of my best teachers. Just been listening to them and watching them, you know. We've, we've got initiates in our tradition, you know, who are just outstanding. And they get it and they want more and... And they volunteer to do things, you know, they want to get more involved in the tradition. And and these are the things that keep a teacher excited and a teacher moving, you know. Uh, I like to match energy for energy. And if I've got somebody that's really savvy, you know, I want to keep up with them and I want to, I want to feed them as much as possible. You know, unfortunately, I don't have all the time to do that because we have a lot of students and we have a lot of initiates that you know, all demand time. And then there's also my time as an author, and then there's also my time as a co-director of Ash, Birch, and Willow to be creating new material, answering questions, running groups. You know, there's there's, there's only two of us, Stephanie and myself, and we, we have a lot of people to take care of, and it can't always be done in a timely way. But the, the, the students who really get that are the ones that cut us the slack. And I always tell people, if I haven't answered you, just come back and ask me again. I'm not ignoring you. You just got lost in the shuffle. Yeah. Well, what happens you know? is you get, you get, they get down. That happens a lot of mine. They get down below because yeah. more comes in, and then they, yeah. you know, and it doesn't. Yeah, even yeah. if I, I mean, I've tried flagging it. I've tried making folders. Right. I've tried, you right. know, all kinds of little tricks to help me, you know, bring me back to that. But it, it is, it is tough. Yeah, and I just say, you know, think the best. Don't think we're ignoring yeah. you. Don't think you're not important. Yeah, I was just going to say that, we don't care. Or, think, yeah. think the other thing, that yeah. you must have got lost in communication. Yeah. Um, or you sent it and they never got it. Come back with that. You know, haven't heard back from you. Just checking in. If you do that, 
then I'll go, oh, gosh, yeah, that's right. I never answered that. And then I'll get it done. But uh, it's never, for Stephanie or myself, it's never an issue of we don't care about your question. You know, we don't, you know, it's never an issue of that. It's just an issue of it's a conveyor belt. And sometimes uh, maybe something falls off the belt. We didn't notice it. Mm-hmm. Yep, for sure. <laughs> well, let's take another little break. Okay. And uh, then we'll come back and we'll talk some more because that's one thing we can do. We can. So uh, we are going to take a little break and we are going to listen to High Priestess singing The Gathering. Mm-hmm. So we hope you'll enjoy this uh, song. And come on back after the break to Seasons of the Witch.
totally sound. Yeah, that's nice. Hope everybody took advantage of that. There's a nice long little break there. We're going to get a snack or whatever, maybe. <laughs> Welcome back to Seasons of the Witch. Um, you know, I, I want to say that we are being broadcast on International Pagan Radio. So you can hear us on there on Thursdays. It's broadcast several times a day if you want to catch the show. And um, as well as being archived on, on Blog Talk Radio, but uh, International Pagan Radio has picked up Seasons of the Witch, which we are very grateful for. So um, giving them uh, here would be helpful to us, too, because they support us. Right. So um, getting back to our, our topic of um, kind of general, you know, generally talking about your experience as an author and as a teacher, when it, when it comes to your, your books, your readers are really kind of like your students, aren't they? Yeah. So, I mean, do you feel that, um, you know, as we were talking about the, the, do you feel that sometimes your readers make a disconnect or that they don't quite understand, um, you know, your, we talked about the introduction and the preface, but in general, do you think that they sometimes just don't get what you're reading or, or they come with an expectation or, or how do you, how do you look at that? How do you feel like the reader as the student? Well, I think that part of that is true. I mean, I think anybody that reads uh, a book, you know, may not clearly understand what the author had intended or, you know, misunderstood what the author had said. Um, by and large, I don't think that there's a, you know, that that happens a lot with my readership. I think people have read, you know, at least two of my books, um, you know, probably get me pretty much and are able to to accurately uh, discern what I'm talking about. But one of the early criticisms um, was that I repeat different, I repeat the same material here and there in in other books. And um, some people were thinking that that was filler or, you know, whatever they thought about it. But actually that's intentional. You know, when I repeat something, I'm repeating it in different contexts. And to me, the way I was taught, you know, context is everything. So if I'm talking about uh, the antlered god, you know, and, um, you know, as a forest entity, and I'm saying specific things about him in one book, you know, maybe two books down the line, I bring that material back in, but I bring it in a different way, in a different setting, because it changes the meaning if you read it in that context, then those are the aha moments people have. I know they were for me when I was being taught that way to hear it. Because one of my teachers said, and it's very true, is you could sit down and reveal all the mysteries in one setting and they wouldn't get it. Mm-hmm. It has to be in context with something else, something to compare it against, something to touch upon something you've already heard, but now you're hearing it in a different way for the first time. And I've had people, you know, and everybody does. You go, oh, I never thought of it that way before. You know, you'll get that from people. Yeah. And it's true because what you've done is you've given them pretty much the same idea, but you've given it to them in a different context. And so all of a sudden it's, oh, I get it. Yeah. Um, you know, I was taught uh, in what they call the mystery tradition. And the mystery tradition lays things out in that way when you're writing so that the reader has to read it three times in order to really get what was said. So the first passage through when you read a book 
in the mystery traditional way, the way that I write. The first thing, your first passage through gives you the information. Now you know what the author had to share and what they said. And, uh, but you had no, um, you weren't um, oriented to that already. You had no uh, predisposition to understand it. So you read it as data. Some of it you got, some of it you didn't. Some of it seemed boring. Some of it seemed interesting. But if you read it the second time, now you have you have a bit of context because now you're you're seeing. Oh, I see the connection now that I didn't see before because you finished the book. Now you're reading it again, and you have not only the data, but now all of a sudden you're going, Oh, I get it. I know why he said that here. Now I get why this was important. You know, because it's now in a new context. So the third time through, you're reading not only the data and the data in context, you're now able to walk, to read the book as a teaching. Um, it's almost like when you watch a movie. Yes. And then you go back and you watch the movie again. Yeah. And again, all of a sudden you see things in it you didn't see before. And oh, that's why he did that. You know, oh, that's why that happened. And, yeah. and the first you know. time you hear what they say. Yeah, because you're not distracted. You know, right. the first time you watch a movie, you're distracted by a lot of the visuals and your emotional reactions. Mm-hmm. Once you've seen a movie like three times, again, the mystery tradition three, um, you're just enjoying it on a level in which it's all coming to you at once. You know, the sound, the images, the action, the yep. words. You already know the whole movie. Now you're just able to let that wash over you and get the most out of it because you're acclimated fully now. Well, the third reading through a book that's written in the mystery tradition style is the same way. That third reading is powerful because it's going to deliver that book in its entirety. Some people are wired to where they kind of are savvy enough that they're actually getting that through the first read, but others aren't. Um, It takes a while to get it. So I would say that that's probably the biggest misunderstanding. Um, and then other ones are people that are have a strong connection to something already. Um, they would have a knee-jerk reaction to something contrary. To, to what they're yeah. used to. And yeah. all yeah. about that, or, well, Gramasi was wrong here. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and that, that, you know, it's possible. But, uh, you know, when I write, I write to bring the most that I can bring and back it up as best I can. Because the worst, the one thing I do not want to ever happen to one of my readers is for them to be telling something, somebody something I wrote and then for the person to be able to prove that was wrong and they get, you know, bit in the ass because they believed what I said and I was wrong. I try to minimize that as much as possible. Um, my books are more accurate in sequence. You know, I have some books that I wrote early on. Yeah, they need some updating and maybe there was a misunderstanding on my part. I used the wrong date or, you know, whatever it might have been. Those books are less reliable than the books that came later. Yes, but but the, the, the thing is you never shied away from discussing any kind of discourse. Right. Never. And, and the same with your students, you know. If they, if they had a misunderstanding about something that you said or you uh-huh. did, it's the same thing. We're, we are always available and ready. Right. We do not shy away from anything. Right. And, um, uh, oh, I was going to say something about that. Well, go ahead. 
until it comes back into my head. Cause I, well, I wasn't really going anywhere. Oh, you weren't going anywhere. <laughs> yeah, you're there. Um, oh, darn. Yeah, it's just a, you know, it's an interesting process, you know, to, to write and then to hear people give you feedback. You know, people come along. It it, it always startles me a little bit when someone will start off a conversation and go, well, I read your book such and such, and I have, I have a question about what you said in one of the chapters, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, geez, you know. <laughs> First of all, i got to remember, you know, five years ago when I wrote that, and then I've got to figure out what, when they bring it up, I've got to figure out, okay, what is the, what is the objection and what, how do I clarify that or can I clarify that? You know, it's interesting. Um, kind of quote the raven kind of thing. I'm almost like, oh, don't. <laughs> <You know? laughs> don't come back and say, well, this book I read 10 years ago, you know, you clearly were stating, I'm like, oh, geez, you know, what did I say? Um, you know, and sometimes people will say something and I go, I don't remember that. They go, how can you not remember that? And I said, well, because I've written 20 books plus and I don't remember everything in every book. And I asked you about things you said yesterday and you don't remember Well, that. it's all time. <laughs> um, the other thing I wanted to say is, you know, um, in, in relationship to you writing things or, or repeating things is that the, te- the mystery teachings are the mystery teachings. They are always, they are consistent, they are right. foundational, they are time-honored and time-proven, and as you said, to write them in different contexts to be able to um, relate to them and integrate them is an important, important to do. Yeah. And so I don't, you know, uh, yeah. Well, part of it for me, too, is that, you know, as books go out of print, if you were only to have said that one thing in that book, then future, you know, readers or future generations are never going to know about that. Right. But if you scatter it through all of your books, you know, hope, hopefully some of your books will survive, you know, 50, 100 years or more. And the teachings are there. They're not lost because you did manage to get them in, you right. know, frequently in other writings. So, you know, I'm, I'm proud of doing that. I, I, have, I make no excuses for uh, repeating bits of information and themes and concepts. Uh, at all, I think it's a good thing, and I'll continue to do that as long as I write. Mm-hmm. I don't put massive amounts. I mean, I don't put, you know, repeat a full chapter word for word, but I may have a concept that I reworked mm-hmm. that I wrote. It may have been two or three paragraphs in a previous book, and I'll state it again, but I'll say something new about it. Right. Or I'll put it in a, in a category that's new so that all of a sudden it should jump out. Right. Um, you know, that's my Again, writing context. style. Yeah. yeah. And that's just my writing style and the way I like to communicate. Yeah. You're a great communicator. Well, I like to communicate, and, and people seem to feel that I, I give good examples that help them understand. Well, a good example is we, we did this. It was a fabulous workshop on our last Friday night, and it, it was on candle magic. Well, part of it was on candle magic. But there was a, 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 an attendee there who came up after the workshop and said that she's been doing this for 20 years and that she learned um, new things, new things yeah. at, your, at the workshop. Right. Yeah. And that's very flattering, you know. And my, our workshop was a basic one. It wasn't, you know, advanced at all. But I think in, in the way that I relate, do analogies, you know, allegorical, mm-hmm. whatever it might be, I like to give examples of how 
it happens in mundane life too. And I think it helps people to go, oh, I, yeah, I get that. Mm -hmm. I, I've done that before. And then they can turn around and apply it to the craft or to candle magic or ritual or whatever. Because often the things we do in mundane life are really the same principles. You know, but until you, you think of it that way, you know, mm -hmm. um, it's not. You know, I was pointing out at that workshop, one of the things about how we in this dimension take magic for granted, we don't really understand that almost everything we do in this dimension is magical. Um, you know, and what I'm getting at there is I, I point out that that everything that is a material object that was built by humans um, was first a thought. That person had to think, oh, I want to make this chair or this painting or this tool, and they had to design it in their mind. So they're in this thinking of it. They draw it out maybe as a blueprint, um, they go off to the store to buy the materials to make the prototype. I call that gathering the four elements of creation, you know, going and getting the parts. And then come home, they assemble it, you know, and then they've got a physical model of what was once a thought, pure thought. Mm -hmm. So they've manifested their thought into a physical material object. If that's not the definition of magic, I don't know what is. You know, so the chair you're sitting in right now listening to this radio show was someone's thought at one time. And you are literally sitting on the material manifestation of someone's thought. That is magic. We do magic all the time in this dimension. We just don't think of it that way. Um, and so when I teach classes on magic, I like to use analogies like that. Mm -hmm. You know, to make people think, oh, wow, okay, I get that, you know. Rather than just thinking, oh, well, it's just a chair, and the guy just, you know, drew it and nailed the stuff together, and, you know, big deal. No, it is a big deal, because this was astral stuff. This was mental mm -hmm. power and will that turned into a material object. I, I, you know, that's, that's impressive magic. That is impressive magic. I remember the first time you told me that story about... Um, your experience with the fairy and him telling you that this oh. is the most magical. I was so blown away by that because that was what he was saying. Yeah. That the middle realm was the most powerful. Yeah, the material realm is. Is the most magical. Yeah. <clears throat> in between the planes. Because right. you can make thought things. Yeah. And they stay there. Right. And that is so, that, I mean, think, thinking about that is, it's just incredible. Just incredible. Yeah, because uh, the fairy that I encountered was telling me that in his dimension, if he wants to sit, he has the need for, you know, a chair, and that will generate the fabric of his dimension to produce a chair that he can sit in. It, it comes out of the fabric of his dimension, and he sits. But when he has no longer a need to sit, the chair no longer has a need to be a chair. So when he stands, the chair is absorbed back into his realm. And he was pointing out that people, humans, can create that chair, and it's there when they're not. It's there when they have no need for it. And he was saying there's no greater magic than that, because in his realm, which we think is magical, and we think these fairies are magical, he can't produce a chair that will last the next day. He can't go there, and that chair is there. We can. We built a thought that remained a thing, and he said that was the most impressive thing about us, was that we could create a material object from a thought that remained a material object when we were no longer thinking about it. And he thought that that was profound magic. And um, it was an interesting dialogue that we had about that, and it, it changed a lot of things for me. Mm -hmm. 
people uh, seem to get a lot out of that story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah, that was that was really because really you don't tend to think in those terms, you know. Right. See, in the fourth dimension, which is the fairy realm, you have movement. Uh, time is the fourth. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Time is the fourth dimension. Uh-huh. So, in um, the fairy wor- world, everything is transforming. It's moving in fluid because time is passing. So the chair is experiencing the passages of time quickly, and things are moving. Like the fairy was telling me that in order for a fairy to to reach for a cup to drink, he has to reach for where the cup will be when his hand arrives. Whereas in our dimension, because there is no you know, it's a flow. flow of time in that way, we reach for where the cup is and we get hold of it. But in that realm, it doesn't work that way because everything's fluid in movement. Well, to them, it's natural. It's not even anything they think about, just like we don't think about reaching for a glass and think, oh, wow, I got the glass, you know. That's just what we do. That's just what they do. But he was pointing out in the analogy between the two realms of the difference of experiencing a three-dimensional, which is our realm, versus a fourth-dimensional reality, which is their realm, the laws are different. Um, and, and that brings forth a lot of these mystery teachings um, because we begin to think in more expansive ways. Absolutely. It's so cool. I love that. <laughs> mm. I love talking about witchcraft. It just, it just It was like being at that workshop was just like recharging, you know. Yeah. It was just amping up things again. I, I really enjoy that because we get so bogged down in everyday life, um, you know, with all the mundane things that are, you know, we're called upon to attend to and, and be present for. It, it kind of makes me sad sometimes. That, um, it can be overwhelming, but then you get those refreshing moments, you know, when you go out, do a workshop or attend show, a festival. This show is refreshing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it just, it really brings, you right. know, it brings everything back into alignment. And, right and in, into importance again. And see, it's all about growth and experience. You know, you can't stay in the one place. You can't stay stagnant. You know, I still read other authors' books because I want to know what people are talking about. You know, I don't... I know a lot of authors who don't read other authors' books. They just get caught up in their own personal sense of correctness, and they just stay with that, you know. But I'll read other authors' books to see kind of what the contemporary view is, I don't always agree with what I read, um, but that's not important that I agree with everything I read. Um, People don't agree with everything I write, so, I mean, it's just the way of things. But I still try to keep my fingers on the pulse of what's going on. There is a new craft, and then there's the old craft. I cut my teeth, and I'm rooted in the old craft, and that will always be the heart and soul of witchcraft for me. But I'm also an intellectual witch, so I do like to read people's blogs and, and, you know, their books and articles and essays and whatnot. Um, I can't keep up with all of them, but I, I, I do have my favorites, and then I have some that I check out, and I'm, you know, maybe not so impressed with that, or sometimes I'm completely unimpressed, but that's just me. But at least I took the time and effort, you know, to try and grow with that experience by, by looking, reading a new author's book or somebody I've never heard of before that somebody recommended um, you know I like to keep doing that mm-hmm. absolutely I think that's an important element of you know of growth and um, advancement in the evolutionary right. process but and I think I think the students should be open to that 
Exactly. You know, oh. when, when you say, you know, I yeah. want you to do this exercise yeah. or I want you to read this chapter yeah. um, for us to discuss or I want you to try this technique with this tool, they should be um, doing that. should be excited to do it. You know, they should be excited about the opportunity that that may offer. Mm-hmm. You know, rather than just not doing it at all. Mm-hmm. Or, well, I picked up the knife for like two minutes, but then you know, I got bored and put it down, so I didn't complete all the pentacle exercises. That That's not acceptable. Well, and, and also I think a, another very big um, barrier to advancing in, in you know your studies is to not stay um, in a constant stream of it in you know not every day is good but to just um, push aside any spirituality you have or any practice you have when mundane life gets in the way and you you just you know you throw that to the wayside right. that that is not that that's not conducive to helping you or, or no. you know, your growth. It's there to support you during those times rather than no. being a hindrance to, oh, God, I've got to do that <laughs> right, because, right. you know. Yeah, I always wonder about that because people have come to us and they said, well, I've got to stop my spiritual studies for a while because, you know, I'm dealing with so much. It's a way say, of life. I need to take a sabbatical from the course of study because and things are so busy. Well, you know, and I'm stressed and I'm, you know, and I'm thinking, well, that's the time when your spirituality needs to be leaned on harder. It's not a time to put it aside and throw yourself totally into your stress and chaos. Um, the time uh, your spirituality should be helping you get through it. It shouldn't be a burden, like you were saying. You know, it shouldn't, right. it shouldn't be. Right. Well, I, I think I'll just stop yeah. my spiritual life and, and just deal with my mundane life for a while. So I'm going to take a six-month sabbatical from my spirituality and just deal, you know, with my stressful life. I'm thinking that sounds counterproductive. Yeah, it, it is. It is, and and um, it makes me sad as a teacher, you know, that uh, um, people become. I, I I know I have a friend who is very overwhelmed with life, and it breaks my heart that that she's not able to step into, you know, what what could feed her and help right. her. But you know, there's other issues at hand that need to be dealt with. Depression can be very, you know, I know how stagnating that can be um, and how yeah. uh, debilitating it can be. Um, but I'll tell you, keeping your spiritual your spirituality going is so important, even in the midst of that, even if it's just in your own head, you know. Yeah. Um, so is there anything else you'd like to say about that? No, I think we've probably talked about um, as much as we are going to with the in his own words. Oh, okay. I think my words have been spoken, and okay. um, I don't really have anything to to add. So maybe if you want to do any announcements or talk about anything, um, yeah, I, you know, I, I then do. we can uh, go ahead and. I do. What's that? Um, I don't know. What I what, what one of the things I wanted to talk about was the House of Gramassi. Um, I've been trying to. Like, I've, I've been way way late, as many of you might know. You know, with our with our what's been going on in our personal lives the last several years, um, in really um, toning the house of Gramassi, and um, I I have been lax lax in being able to get to that and post things, but I am endeavoring to get onto that again, and I'm going to be posting a new blog by Raven tomorrow and um, updating our appearances because I've added some new. Appearances for the fall season, so I'm anxious to get those up as well. Um, 
if there's anybody out there in a radio lab who has a shop or a festival or an event you would like us to um, be a part of, please feel free to email me at stephanie at House of Gramasi. I'd be happy to um, talk with any, anybody who's interested. And um, we also, uh, you know, Raven and I do oracle readings, and we use our decks, the well-worn path and the hidden path, and we read as a couple, and these, these, both of these decks are shuffled together into one, one deck, and we use those cards as our, um, as our uh, divinatory uh, tool. So you can uh, book a reading with us through the House of Gramasi. I mean, um, well, you can just go to the House of Gramasi, go to Raven's Loft, and you'll find us uh, under the category on Raven's Loft under the House of Gramasi um, readings, and you could uh, purchase a reading there. And then we can uh, schedule it. And it's over the phone or Skype. Yeah, either Skype, Zoom, or over mm-hmm. the phone. And you're welcome to re- uh, record it. And um, it's either half hour, hour long. And um, we really enjoy doing that. So if anybody's interested, please uh, please take a look at that. Um, there was uh, something else on the House of Tomasi. Um Oh, it's gone right through my brain again. I do have several new things I'll be posting on uh, Ravensloft for sale, so you can have a look at there too. That's Ravensloft.biz. That's our online store, and we sell things that are really attuned to the teachings that we have. We have a beautiful line of products called the Crossroads Collection, which was made specifically for us and um, supports some of the teachings that we do. There's a beautiful sacred, it's a, called the Sacred Hearth Key Light. It is really very cool. And it's a little hearth that has a little cauldron in it where you can put a key light in it. And uh, it looks great on an ancestral altar or even anywhere in your house where you could use it um, in that effect. It, it's very incognito and or, you know, you can make it the centerpiece of your altar. And it's paintable too if you wanted to do that. We also have our statues, the uh, Crescent Crown Goddess and the Staghorn God. Um, they're a beautiful uh, set. They're terminated. They're, they're the top part is humanoid, but then the, the torso comes down with the torso, and then the, where the legs would be, that's terminated into an affirms, which is a column. Right, and, stone column. Yeah, stone column, and they come in a mm-hmm. uh, wood finish or a stone finish, and they're absolutely gorgeous. And you can find all those on Raven's Loft, too, under the Crossroads collection, uh, if you're interested, along with our Chimaruda uh, Witches Pendant and uh, several other custom-made pieces. They're not exclusive to us, but they were made for us, and those are um, also on the site. So um, we appreciate your support uh, by purchasing books by Raven on the site and our products. And I also have a fine collection of herbs, being a pharmacute, who, what, what pharmacute wouldn't be whole without her herbs. There you go. And uh, some of them I grow, and um, so if I do purchase them outside, they're purchased from very good sources, so you can rely on that. And um, I also, there is a special young man 
who is going to have a birthday on Friday, and his name is Kernan. And so I want to wish Kernan a very happy birthday. Very happy birthday. And I hope he has a wonderful day celebrating. He will. I know his mom and dad will spoil him rotten, and that's a good thing. But um, he's very special to us, and we wish him all the very best um, this year um, in his uh, new soul. How old is he going to be? I think it's going to be eight. Really? I want to say it's going to be eight. Wow. Yeah. Amazing! Well, I, I can't believe that. On. Yeah. <clears throat> so um, I think that we'll probably conclude the show with that. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Yeah, I think we've uh, said it all. Two shows. So we will be back again um, for the next show in uh, two weeks, which will be on um, May thirtieth. And uh, we'll have something new and different to talk about. And again, as Raven said, the only reason that uh, we get to live our bliss is because there's listeners like you, readers who read his books, people who take our courses, support our web store. And um, you guys are awesome. Yes. And uh, tell you, words really can't tell you uh, how, how much gratitude we have for the life that we are enabled to do. Um, so thank you so right. much for listening, and to you, blessed be, and good night. And as you depart.